You can turn once again in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, we'll be considering verses 13 to 18 this evening. What might be considered, as I've looked at the book, really the highlight or the climax pinnacle of this book. A book which in many ways reflects the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, especially the book of Proverbs. And this is a call, a call to wisdom, a call to heavenly wisdom. So let's give our attention to God's word from his servant James, chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. May the Lord bless us as we look to his word together. Now, it's not hard to imagine and consider the differences between a society that is marked by chaos and corruption, or or society that's marked by righteousness, justice, and good order. Indeed, none of us want to live in the former. We would all want to live in the latter. And we look around and we can see where there is chaos in the world. We can see where there is corruption. And our text speaks of these states as the results of two different types of wisdom, the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. Characteristics that might lead to disorder and every vile practice, or characteristics that lead to righteousness and peace. This text helps lay the foundations for a righteous, well-ordered society, a righteous life, a righteous family, and a righteous community. And this is what we want, right? This is what we're after, righteousness. And so we would do well to pay attention to the differences between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. Worldly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And the main point this evening is simply this, that worldly wisdom leads to corruption and chaos, while heavenly wisdom leads to righteousness and peace. Look with me at verse 13. The text begins, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now James is coming from this discussion of works that reveal true faith, preeminently the works of the tongue, how we speak of people, But he comes to this discussion of earthly versus heavenly wisdom. And continuing into chapter 4, he's going to continue with these themes of how wisdom in these two directions makes a difference in communities and interactions in how we deal with one another. But this is an initial call to wisdom. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? He's calling out for a wise one, much like in the Proverbs. It'll say, who is wise? Where is the wise one? And Our hearts are supposed to respond, 
I want to be counted among one of those wise people. I want to be a wise one. And so if we're going to say that, here's what James would say. Let him, by his good conduct, show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That is, he says, if you want to show wisdom, you show it by good conduct that's conducted in meekness. That is to say that a wise Christian displays good works in a gentle manner. The call is to wisdom. And this is the imperative in the text. This is what he says, show these wise works in meekness. And now he's going to compare and contrast for us. If we want to be these wise working people, we want to be careful to avoid the worldly wisdom and we want to pursue the heavenly wisdom. So let's first consider the worldly wisdom. Look at verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth, for this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So he's saying not all wisdom is created equal. There is an earthly wisdom that is unspiritual, fleshly, and he even calls it demonic. Demonic wisdom. And it's the demonic wisdom of dis, that leads to disorder and every vile practice. Disorder and evil deeds. Uh, the word for disorder here is, is a word for instability. And um, the, the concordance shows that its usage is to often talk about disturbances, upheavals, and revolutions almost anarchy, first in the political and then into the moral sphere. This word is used in Luke 21.9 when Jesus is saying, when you hear of tumults and commotions and rumors of wars, it's used of this upheaval of society, like how war shakes the stability of the national order. Disorder, not what we want. And secondly, evil deeds, chaos and corruption. And are these not the two great fears in our day? The corruption of society, the, the loosening of morals, the celebration of wickedness. We fear this corruption, and rightly so. But also chaos, the threats of violence, of upheavals, of wars, and the chaos that that brings. We desperately do not want to see chaos and corruption in society. And so, it's essential then for us to understand what are the qualities that lead to these sorts of dire results. The qualities that James speaks of as representing earthly, worldly wisdom. And he says these are two, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And he says again in verse 16, jealousy and selfish ambition. Let's consider these qualities in turn. First, bitter jealousy. Uh, this word for bitter is a, is, is a good Greek word, pikros. It's just, it feels good to say, pikros. And it means sharp, or bitter. And James actually just used this word in, previously in the chapter when he talked about, can a stream bring forth both good water and bitter water? Right? So the sort of bitterness that is acrid and terrible to taste. Bitter jealousy. And the, the usage of jealousy here is not quite the covetous type of jealousy, but more the envious type of jealousy. And this word is used largely to denote some strong emotion. It can be used in positive contexts, where it's often translated zeal, and it can be used in negative contexts, where it's often translated jealousy. 
But the image it's given is of a sort of boiling over passion, like a pot when you've left it on too long and then the lid starts to wobble and then the foam starts boiling over. Bitter jealousy. Um, one, one writer talked about how it reflects an envious and contentious rivalry, a form of envy, uh, an antagonistic and contentious attitude towards others. So a bitterness in the attitude, and then this sort of contentious rivalry in this overflowing passion. And if you put this together, the image that pops up is one where this sort of life is marked by um, a competition with everyone else. Everything is a zero-sum game. If you win, I lose. If I win, you lose. It's a win-at-all-costs mentality. That's what this bitter jealousy leads to. If we live life always worrying about who's getting ahead of us, who's pressing us down, we see others as competitors instead of fellow laborers in the walk of life. And this sort of bitter jealousy leads people to corrupting principles, right? Don't we see this clearly illustrated in sports, where, where, where there's an upfront competition, but that competitiveness leads and can lead to cheating. Uh, there's, you know, Winter Olympics just passed. I don't think any of you guys watched it. I did because I'm Canadian and we do good. But uh, about, about a dozen years ago, um, a short track speed skater named Simon Cho, uh, he was so competitive that he ended up tampering with the skates of some Canadians. So that's even worse. He tampered with the Canadian team's skates, bent them, so that as the race went on, they lost their grip and lost the race. And now he ended up apologizing for this and felt really bad. But this competitive spirit, or you might think more famously, someone like Lance Armstrong, renowned cyclist, winning Tour de France after Tour de France, yet in that drive to win comes that corruption of doping, of needing to take illegal performance-enhancing drugs in order to stay on top, in order to be the best. And if that sort of idea comes out of sports into our lives, it corrupts us, it corrupts our principles, and leads us to pulling others down to get ahead. And we understand there can be a healthy, friendly competition where there's understanding of the common rules and a spirit of competition, but when it turns into this sort of bitter contention, that's where in the world we see it leads to market manipulation, to the stealing of intellectual property, um, to hatred of other peoples and other groups who we feel like are against us, those who are competing with us, stealing our jobs, and it foments a sort of hatred. And this is the attitude that is used to stoke up wars, that we as a country have gotten a bad deal, the other nations around us have come against us, they're allied against us, and we need to jump back to the top to claim what's rightfully ours. No matter who gets in our way, we can press them down. The feelings of resentment, and we see this internationally right now, don't we? Bitter jealousy, and James brings in this follow-up word which conveys a similar concept of selfish ambition. Just one word in the Greek uh, could be translated ambition, rivalry, or the concept perhaps of self-seeking. Uh, one person said a good way to capture this is the idea of a mercenary self-seeking. That is a seeking of yourself regardless of um, what the cost may be or the principles. Mercenary self-seeking. Now, now, boys and girls, you might not know that word mercenary, but if you've ever seen a show where someone's called a bounty hunter, that's the same idea. 
And the problem with a bounty hunter is that they just do a job for money, regardless of how bad it is, regardless of how wrong it is. They don't care. They don't care what was right or wrong. They only care about the money and the job. And that's what this word is mentioning. It's that we just want what we want so bad that we'll do whatever it takes to get it. Whatever rules we have to break, whatever people we have to hurt, I deserve it, I want it, and it'll be mine. It's an ends justify the means approach. And this sort of bitter envy and self-centered ambition uh, is evident all around us. And we need to train ourselves as we're um, staying abreast of current events, as we're engaging in ideas and dialogues, we really want to be cognizant to notice where these qualities are popping up. Whether it seems like there's a good argument or something we agree with, it's the thought of, is there being a promotion here of a sort of bitter envy, rivalry, and a self-seeking? And we know that this is a problem on both sides of the spectrum, where there's this idea that there can only be one winner. You can never work together with anyone else. It's a win-at-all-costs mentality. And it leads to um, dire consequences. We want to be aware of these sorts of attitudes that would lead us to forsake our Christian principles. And so we want to beware of worldly wisdom and learn to spot them in the world around us. But we also want to be aware of the worldly wisdom that infects our own hearts and our own interactions. And to think, what are the scenarios in my life where because I feel like I deserve more than I have, I'm feeling tempted to forsake my principles and compromise? Think of some potential examples. You might say to yourself, well, I, I got my college degree, I worked hard on it, and I don't yet have the job I think I deserve, so I think I'll just lie on my resume, say I know how to use Excel when I don't, and in my job interview I'll fudge things a bit because I think I deserve that job. Or maybe it's, I think I deserve the same size of house and same quality of car as my neighbor here, and so in order to get it, it doesn't matter if I put my family in crippling debt because this is what I deserve. Or perhaps, Life has treated me unfairly. I've had really difficult times of suffering, and therefore I think I deserve the release or pleasure that narcotics can provide me, that alcohol can provide me. I deserve it because life has been hard. Or maybe it's my marriage is terrible. I've been hard done by, and so I'll take and find the sexual pleasure I want wherever I want, because I deserve it. Whenever we feel like we have a justification for our selfish behavior. We're in grave danger of falling to this worldly wisdom of bitter envy and self-seeking. But in contrast to this worldly wisdom that produces corruption and chaos, we want to look at the heavenly wisdom that leads to righteous order and peace. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James here gives us eight characteristics of heavenly wisdom. And he tells us that when these eight characteristics are practiced, here's what's going to be the result. Righteous order and peace. But notice, first of all, where does this wisdom come from? Well, he says it's the wisdom that is from above. Remember, James, in chapter 1, he said, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. 
That is, wisdom comes from God. And therefore, it is God to whom we go to find this wisdom. Or as Paul said in Colossians 3, 1-2, that we're to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, to set our minds on things that are above and not on things on the earth. And when we recognize that the wisdom of God comes from above, there's an implicit humility there, because we're saying that we don't have the wisdom. We don't have it here below. We need to find it from above. Wisdom comes from God. And therefore, this wisdom reflects the quality and character of God in these eight traits. Eight traits that show us what the wisdom from above looks like. Let's briefly consider each of these in turn. The wisdom from above is first pure. That is, it's holy. It is chaste and unmixed. And a pure person is one who is above reproach, not living intentionally in any unrepentant sin. The wisdom from above, secondly, is peaceable. That is, it's both peace-loving, peace-seeking, and peace-producing. And you see, a peaceable person is not a pot-stirrer, not an aggravator, not someone who celebrates driving others crazy. And young people, it's someone who's not a troll, someone who doesn't want to troll and stir up strife and dissension for the fun of it. The wisdom from above is thirdly gentle. It's meek, forbearing, and moderate. And a gentle person is one who turns the other cheek, who doesn't repay evil for evil, but is always ready to de-escalate and to pacify a situation. Fourthly, the wisdom from above is open to reason. That is, it is reasonable, compliant, and ready to obey. A reasonable person is persuadable not stubborn, not closed-minded and stuck in their ways, not resisting for the sake of resisting. The wisdom from above is full of mercy, that is, a heart of compassion. For a merciful person activates compassion in the meeting of felt needs, compassion that moves them to alleviate stress, to bring healing and wholeness in the world just like Jesus did. Sixthly, it's full of good fruits, that is, good deeds. And a fruitful person is one concerned with doing good to all in all spheres of life. It's impartial, that is, unwavering, without dubiousness. It's unambiguous. And an impartial person in James is one who is clear speaking, not equivocating, not deceptively hiding his true intentions, but being upright and honest. And lastly, the wisdom from above is sincere. That is, it's unfeigned, it's authentic, and without a hint of hypocrisy. A sincere person is not a faker, not one who is merely seeking external approval while covering a darker heart, but one motivated by love for God and for others, not the praises of men. The qualities of the heavenly wisdom. And there's a lot to remember in these eight traits. You'd probably do well to memorize them. But as I looked at them, I I thought perhaps these could be summarized into a few traits. And uh, although it is risky to try to condense scripture to be more helpful, and like I said, memorize all eight qualities. But for myself, I found it helpful to think of the sort of groupings of these qualities that seem to go together. And so first, I think one through four, peace, purity, peaceableness, gentleness, and open to reason can be well summarized in this word cooperation. 
Cooperation, as opposed to uh, that competitive spirit we talked about where everything's zero-sum, it's a mutuality and reciprocity. And so if we think, if we want to be people that display this sort of cooperative heart, here's what it might look like. That um, our questions to ask ourselves, that is, in discussions online, in disagreements with my parents or with my spouse, am I someone who's escalating the situation? Am I truly wanting to hear or just to be heard? Am I actually open to the perspective of others? Am I willing to be wrong? Am I pursuing peace or starting a fight? Because we want to be gentle and persuadable as we cooperate for the good of others. And so what's your focus? Is it on being right or making things right? Do you want to just win or would you love to see everybody win? The person practicing heavenly wisdom will be marked by cooperation. That is a concern for mutual benefit and reciprocity. And secondly, when we think of mercy and good fruits, we think of the word compassion. The wise person is cooperative and compassionate. And so when we question ourselves for compassion in our hearts, we think, what is my general disposition towards my neighbors, especially to the poor and the suffering? Do I really care? Do I spend time actually putting myself in their shoes? Do I desire to do what I can for their good? Or do I use other people's personal failings and bad decisions as an excuse to not show mercy? When presented with an opportunity to give and share and spend of myself, is my natural inclination to be tight-fisted or open-handed? Do I perhaps use stewardship as an excuse to not be generous? And the person practicing heavenly wisdom will be marked by compassionate generosity. Generosity with their time, with their talents, and with their treasure. The person showing heavenly wisdom shows forth cooperation, compassion, and lastly, credibility. Being impartial and sincere. And we ask ourselves, how do we present ourselves to the world? Do we present a credible witness? So we ask, am I... Am I trying to cultivate a dishonest image of myself, whether in real life or online? Am I trying to use cunning and manipulation to get others to do what I want, instead of being forthright? Am I prone to using threats? Am I prone to using anger? Am I prone to using complaining? Am I prone to using emotionalism? Am I prone to using deception and half-truths? All these being tools that we would use to subtly convince people to do what we want them to do. Instead of simply being calmly honest, open, and accepting the outcomes, whatever they may be. Do I resist showing the sort of weakness and vulnerability required in expressing my true needs, my true concerns? Do I do good deeds and practice religion mostly for the status it conveys on me or from a genuine heart to serve the Lord? And these sorts of manipulative techniques of, um, of two-sided speech, it makes us lose credibility. We're not seen as someone who's trustworthy, who's respectable, but rather non-credible. The wisdom from above is marked by cooperation, compassion, and credibility. And the result, 
the result of the sort of heavenly wisdom James describes for us is shown in verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This sort of righteousness is likened to sowing seeds in the ground. As we seek to practice these sort of spiritual qualities in our lives, it's as if everywhere we go, there is seeds being sown in the ground. And as they grow, the harvest, the fruit on them, is righteousness, justice. And the idea of righteousness um, is sometimes easier to think of as just the idea of rightness. What do we want that's wrong to be made right? Righteousness is making what's wrong with this world right. And there's much wrong with us. There's much wrong in the world. And we want to see a harvest of rightness everywhere we go, being made right with God, being made right with one another. There's much going on, much going wrong. And if we're to see this real rightness in the world, we want to start sowing this heavenly wisdom, being marked by all the qualities James has shown us. And so the final question then for us is, how do we attain this heavenly wisdom? How might we grow up into these qualities? How can we be these sorts of peacemakers sowing this harvest of righteousness? Can we go up to heaven and find them? Well, we don't need to go up to heaven because the wisdom of heaven has already come down to us. Jesus is called the wisdom from God. He became to us wisdom. And we didn't have to run far away, but he came right to us to first declare to us the wise ways of God, to model them in his life, and then in his death to purchase the wisdom that we would never truly have. And Jesus, he's marked by this heavenly wisdom in this passage. He didn't aggressively, competitively seek his own. The scripture says he could have called 10,000 angels to rescue him, and yet he submitted he gave up his power and came to lay down his life for sinners like you and me. And you see, the big problem is that the first competitive, selfish, envious relationship is the relationship of us to God. We naturally want to be the rulers of our lives. We naturally don't want God to be telling us what to do, but we want to claw to the top. We want the knowledge. We want the control. We want the say in how to govern our lives. But Jesus shows us a better way. He invites us to learn from him, to take his yoke upon us, that easy, light yoke, to submit to his rule, to trust his sacrifice and acknowledge his lordship. For before we can truly grow into this heavenly wisdom ourselves, we must first acknowledge the true heavenly wisdom, which is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God and our Lord. And as people that have put our trust in Christ, we find Christ to be for us, as Colossians 1 says, wisdom righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The one who enables us by the Spirit more and more to grow up into these qualities of heavenly wisdom. In many ways, these eight qualities resemble the fruit of the Spirit that we've been hearing about in the evening services because it is the fruit that the Spirit works within us. The Spirit Jesus sent to transform us into his likeness. And so as we want to pursue heavenly wisdom and flee worldly wisdom, we must do it in prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. So let's be people that are daily calling on the Spirit to transform us, to enlighten our minds, to guide our feet, that we might be a people marked by heavenly Christ-like wisdom. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we know that in so many ways we fall short and will continue to fall short. And we thank you for that grace, the grace that is always there to catch us when we fall, the grace that will never fail, the grace that doesn't run out even when we're at our worst. And when we were at our worst, God, you did your best for us. You gave us your son. There was no greater gift. And we thank you for the wisdom of Christ. And we pray that we would find him to be our true wisdom and that we would walk in his ways, serve him with our all, and reflect before a watching world that there is a true wisdom from above and it's not found in the ways of earth. So bless your people and strengthen them to well bear the name of Christ for his sake we pray. Amen.